Hi, my name is Gerald Freed. I was one of the composers for Star Trek, which is one of the glories of my composing life. You're listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. I'm still on my break as Season 3 of Trek Untold draws near, but until then, I'm giving you another classic dose of Trek Untold, and this one is from September 20 in what was originally my 18th episode of the series. And that episode was all about promoting the comedy film Unbelievable which was meant to be sort of a love letter to Star Trek and sci-fi. It was a film that had a whole bunch of cast members across all the different Star Trek universes coming together, uh, as well as Snoop Dogg, to do some kind of interesting, funny slapstick stuff. That podcast episode originally featured three guests, but for this encore presentation, I'm focusing on one, and what a special guest that one truly is. Because this week, we're revisiting my chat with composer Gerald Freed, who is the last living composer to have made music for the original Star Trek series. And pun not necessarily intended, but consider this free promotion for that film, Gerald has also made music for an unbelievable amount of TV shows and films across the decades, some of which we'll discuss in this episode. I truly wish I'd spent more time talking with Gerald, too, about all these things, because that resume really has to be seen to be believed, or maybe in this case, since he's a composer, it has to be heard to be believed. Now, I have to tell you guys, looking back on this thing, and this is not a knock to the movie he was promoting, but I really wish I'd made my interview with Gerald its own episode. At the time, I thought it was the right decision to pair his interview up with another one related to the film, and I still think it was, but it always irked me because really, Gerald deserved his own time to shine. To me, he was the main attraction. He was the main course of that episode. And rightfully so. And worst of all, I regret not recording this interview on video, because at the time, back then, I was only recording audio, because I wasn't sure how I felt about having to do more video editing, which is, by the way, something I already do for a living full-time. The interview I did with Gerald was my very first Zoom recording ever, And Gerald was actually willing to do video, but I passed. Oh, what a fool I was, but thankfully I learned my lesson, and it wasn't long before I recorded what would be my very first audio and video episode, which turned out to be with Max Grudenchik, aka Rom, from Star Trek Deep Space Nine, but hey, if you want to check that one out, go ahead and dig that one up in my archives. Gerald was incredibly down-to-earth, and offered a lot of insight into how someone composes songs and music for TV and film, something that I feel like, you know, not a lot of people get to hear about. Plus, he was just really fun to talk to, and that man just deserves a talk show of his own. He could totally host something on his own. I'd watch it all the time. But anyway, without further ado, let's go ahead and shine that spotlight on a legend in his field and revisit my chat with Gerald Freed. But before we get started with the show, I want to remind you to check out the Trek Untold Patreon page at patreon.com slash trekuntold. It's the best way to stay up to date on what's happening with the show, as well as to have early access to new episodes, the chance to ask questions to upcoming guests, and much more. And when I say that, I mean that I'm also working on how to make this Patreon experience better for everyone. So now is definitely a good time to jump on board and become a member of the Trek Untold family. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Shout out, of course, as always, to show sponsor Triple Fiction Productions, who have been with us since episode one and are still here with us after episode 100, whose 3D printed Star Trek inspired merchandise you're going to learn more about later on in this show, along with a few other Trek related folks who I would love for you to support. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, 
Access interview file. Affirmative. Initiating program. And we are back on Trek Untold. And joining us now, we have a legend in music. This is the first time, folks, we've ever had anybody who's been a composer or been involved in the music of Star Trek. But in addition to Star Trek, he has composed music for nearly 200 films and television shows, including Mission Impossible, Roots, Gilligan's Island, The Man from Uncle, Dynasty. He's an Emmy Award winner and an Oscar nominee whose music you've heard all your life. And most recently, he's now done the sci-fi parody film Unbelievable. Today, we have the honor of speaking to composer Gerald Freed. Jerry, how are you today? Not bad. You know, virus to the contrary notwithstanding. <laughs> so you grew up in New York City, correct? Uh, if you call living in New York City for my first 20 years growing up, yes. <laughs> and what part of New York was that? Uh, the Bronx. The Bronx. Okay, I'm from Queens. Oh, all right. So I've, I've spoken to people from Queens before. It's uh, it's not as bad as speaking to Brooklyn people, of course. But, <laughs> in fact, I lived in Queens for about five or six years in Fresh Meadows. So in the Bronx, where did you grow up? Were you always into music? Yeah, well, my grandfather was a professional musician in uh, the old country in Russia. And uh, the, the, they left... Uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, in 19, my mother was born in 1900, so they left around 1910. Um, and uh, they, he had five daughters. Four of the five daughters were professional musicians, not my mother. And uh, I sort of came to my aunt Sally was my first piano teacher. And... Um, I'm grateful to her. I uh, I got the good inheritance, um, so I, I sort of grew up sort of with music. And who were some of the musicians that you admired when you were growing up? Well, I was a tennis sax player, so Coleman Hawkins was at the top of my list. Coleman Hawkins, Lester Young, people from that generation, Ben Webster. Then uh, I switched to oboe, and uh, to the, the Robert Bloom. And Harold Gomberg uh, were my oboe heroes. And then I uh, went into composing and um, fell in love and have not recovered from the music of Igor Savinsky, Bella Bartok. The good thing about having this diverse background is because in the movie TV business, sooner or later you're going to have to write music that relates to all those various cultures. So I sort of had a head start being a... A musician playing all those things. Yeah. So you mentioned the oboe, and that's actually what you went to Juilliard for, if I'm correct, right? You were an oboe major? Yes, I was oboe major at Juilliard, yes. And so how did you enjoy your time at Juilliard? What, what did you learn while you were there? I think the most valuable thing about Juilliard was that I was surrounded by all these bright, young, talented students. And we formed, you know, some of the teachers there were from the old school and frankly, not very valuable, even though some of them certainly were. Uh, well, you learn the fundamentals. You study what made the great composing masters great. I'm talking about Beethoven, etc., and why. And that was very valuable. When you're on a, a movie score and you're stuck, what do I do now? Then you think to yourself, well, if Beethoven was doing this, what would he do? What would he think about? So the culture of Juilliard was the most valuable thing about it, and the collection of all these bright, talented people up there. Am I making any sense? Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I went to uh, Pratt Institute, 
for illustration. And I kind of had the same experience where I had a few good teachers, but for the most part, it was about getting the fundamentals and more so just being surrounded by all these working artists that kind of help get you move along and help you find things out about your work and yourself. Oh, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> so one of your earliest things that you worked on that I think you're known for is some of Stanley Kubrick's earlier films. And uh, I'd like to hear the story of how you got connected to Stanley. Okay, sure. Uh, I was kind of an illiterate musician compared to all those people down at Gretel Village who at the age of 16 sounds like they knew everything about everything. And Alex Singer was a neighbor of mine up in the Bronx. We were handball partners. And he had this friend, Stanley Kubrick, uh, who was a Look magazine photographer at the age of 16, actually. And uh, he put this Kevin's money and he made a film. And uh, Alex said, you know, a friend of mine is a... Uh, it's an oboe major at Juilliard. Uh, you, know, do, do you need some music for your movie? And I said, sure, Kubrick said. So I met with Stanley, and we got along kind of okay. We actually became tennis partners briefly. And uh, I also got him a game with my Barracuda Ball Club, the Barracudas. He wanted badly to be a regular kid, Stanley. And he was so bright that the, he couldn't possibly be a regular kid. Nevertheless, he wanted to go through the motions, including playing on a softball team. So I got him a game with the Barracudas, and uh, he was grateful uh, to me for the rest of our <laughs> knowing each other, for you making um, the appearance of a regular kid. Anyway, he asked me <laughs> if I knew anything about you know, composing a film score. You know, I'm at Juilliard. So I said, uh, lying shamefully, <laughs> said, of course, you know, all oboe players know about conducting uh, composing movie scores. And he actually said, okay, well, I'll take your word for it. We're going to score at the RCA Fifth Avenue Studios up in New York. And will you be ready in a couple of months? I said, sure. So I spent the next two or three weeks going to two or three movies a day to find out what the hell to do. <laughs> and uh, we did that first score day of the fight. And uh, Stanley liked it. And the RKO liked it. It was RKO Pathé. And both Stanley and I were hired by RKO Pathé to do f other work for them based on that one score. So I do owe Kubrick my career as a film composer. He trusted me. He shouldn't have, but he trusted me. <laughs> and I got lucky and uh, the score worked out okay. Yeah, I think he made the right choice. Okay. So I've heard about Stanley's reputation being a perfectionist on set, but what was he like to deal with uh, when you're the music composer? How, how was he to work with? At the beginning, he wasn't Stanley Kubrick of notoriety yet. He was just a guy who was trying to make a move who didn't know that much about film scoring himself, even though he played drums in his high school orchestra. Uh, so he left me alone. Then when we got down to... <coughs> My fifth movie for him, Pass the Glory, he was the Stanley Kubrick of the exacting taskmaster that he's famous for. Um, and that was more difficult. It was also more challenging. You know, you had to justify every single note, which was kind of just fun and exciting. But that was not the case at the beginning. He just left me alone. Yeah, so with Kubrick, you worked on several things, including uh, Fear and Desire, Paths of Glory, as you mentioned, and The Killing. Which of the works that you did with Stanley are you most proud of? Probably Paths of Glory. It was the first all-percussion score, um, I, as far as I know, in music uh, film history. Well, like I said, we used La Marseillaise and we used uh, uh, French uh, ballroom scenes, some music. But uh, 
it was an all percussion score, and I think I'm proud of that. Uh, and he let me do it. Uh, it was daring of him. You know, he was trying to get a commercial release so to have a score that was all percussion was practically unheard of, uh, and he let me do it. I also liked this, the music I did for uh, The Killing, kind of a, a relentless uh, go get em kind of approach. And uh, well, even Fear and Desire, that first feature, yeah, yeah, no, uh, Kubrick did movies that uh, made, uh, invited you to write creative individual stuff, which, so I guess I liked all of them for him. <laughs> and it must have been very exciting seeing Kirk Douglas on the screen for a movie that you did the score for. Oh, hell yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> As a matter of fact, what was the name of the picture that Stanley and Kirk Douglas after that? Oh, I'm blocking out the name. Oh, Spartacus. Yeah, right, yeah. So Stanley uh, wanted to be along on Spartacus, and it was Kirk who said, Jerry, I like you, you did a good job on Pass of Glory, but I don't think you had the experience. I was still like 20, 21 years old. I don't think he had experience to do this. So he, he blocked me doing Spartacus. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but still, uh, as I said before, I owed my film career to Stanley. You know, um, he broke the catch-22 in films, which is you can't get hired unless you prove yourself. You can't prove yourself unless you get hired. <laughs> Very so, true. Yeah, so Stanley uh, broke that barrier for me. And uh, we've retained a friendship over the years, even when he was in England. So on the other side of the coin, you also worked with Roger Corman, who's another very prolific director, but not known as much for high art films like Stanley. Uh, how would you describe working with Roger Corman? Um, it was pleasant in that he kept his nose out of our affairs. He said, he, uh, he implied that, you know, with my reputation, I know what to do, so he's going to shut up and wait till it's finished and enjoy it, which is what he did. He showed up for the recording, but uh, he didn't have much to say. And how did a recording session work back during the uh, 50s and 60s and 70s? Was it like that they projected the film and you would compose live in front of it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we had cue marks on the film itself, streamers, you know, three-second streamers, so we knew when to come in to begin the cue. And, uh, you know, punch marks on the screen sometimes to help us set the tempos. So, yeah, it was pretty much then as it is now. Well, now it's sort of more electronic, and you know, we work at home with all the fancy electronic equipment. So we've heard a lot of actors who we've chatted with on this show who talk about the hustle of being an actor and going from gig to gig. Uh, but what's the hustle like for a music composer back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s? What was it like? It's, well, you... It, it was dangerous to count on doing that for a living, so I kept my job. I was uh, doing saxophone work around New York, and I was also with the Pittsburgh Symphony and the Dallas Symphony and the New York Little Orchestra on oboe. Then when I moved to California, I got a job with the L.A. Philharmonic. Um, so I, I kept that sort of my basic income, but um, the work kept on coming in. Enough people saw what I did and uh, called me you know, to do their movies. So uh, I do not really have a hard luck story. You also did some work uh, on Gilligan's Island, I read. And uh, at one point, you actually had some musicians doing a part where they were blowing into bottles. Uh, what can you tell us about your time on Gilligan's Island? <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And Sherwood Schwartz had a good sense of humor. And he also left me alone. You know, for, the, uh, for the first couple of sessions, he came to the sessions 
uh, you know, to, to make sure I knew what I was doing. And he liked what he heard, and um, he left me alone. <laughs> and it, 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 that was that was kind of dessert, Gilligan's Island. You know, Patrick Warren, those heavy movies were the entree, and the, the Gilligan's Island was the dessert. It was fun and silly, and the guys loved playing it. And it was was a nice part of my credentials. I heard that there was an episode that you did where you had musicians just blowing into bottles. Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, what they did, uh, Ginger, one of the uh, Gilligan's Island uh, characters, missed music. So uh, Gilligan and the captain went around and collected seashells and figured out the pitches for them and uh, blew across the top of the she- seashells to produce a pitch. So uh, it was up to me to tell them what seashells to blow into at what time to make tunes. <laughs> oh, that's so, really so fun. Shrek Untold will return momentarily. Shrek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or a toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or a part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hello, everyone. I'm Armin Shimmerman. Perhaps you know me better as Quark from Deep Space Nine. As your favorite Ferengi, I'm here to promote a sale. It's not self-sealing stem bolts, but my new novel, Illyria. And the first book is called Betrayal of Angels. Some of you may not know that aside from being an actor, I'm also a novelist. My newest novel is a mystery set in 1583. Its heroes are the historical characters of John Dee, who was a spiritualist, a book collector, and a spy. With him is an unsuccessful playwright named William Shakespeare. Their mission is to investigate a nobleman who happens to be Count Orsino from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. The book employs comedy, history, and fantasy to tell a page-turner of a story. It reads a lot like Sherlock Holmes, or like one of my favorite shows, Homeland. Please check out my website at www.armandshimmerman, get the name right, .com, or you can get it directly from my publisher at www.jumpmasterpress.com. You can buy it either as a paperback, a hardback, or an ebook. So, why don't you check it out and judge for yourself, or better yet, Give it as a gift to someone. I know they'll appreciate it. Uh, disclaimer, no Latin I'm accepted.
We now return to Trek Untold. So, one other show I want to talk about before we jump into Trek, and that's The Man from Uncle. Uh, and the spy shows were a very big deal in that era. So I'm, I'm curious, what did you do to try and make your music stand out from the other shows on television at that time that were doing spy TV shows? Like Man from Uncle and Mission Impossible. Yeah. What? How could I put into words what I did? For one thing, I concentrated on the getting keeping the audience interested and excited in what was going on to such an extent that one of the reviews I got of Stanley Kubrick's The Killing was that uh, Gerald Fried's music pounded me into the wall like a hammer. Oh, wow. That's a compliment. Yeah! <laughs> that was what I was trying to... And that's what Kubrick uh, wanted. You know, he said... Uh, we were talking about what the music should do in this or that scene. He said... He sang to me a drum pattern, and I understood what he meant. And uh, that, that sort of helped me... It confirmed what I thought music should do. should keep the audience glued, the audience and their ears glued to the seats. And um, maybe that's what I did. That's what differentiates my music from other film composers, uh, kind of a relentless, uh, dramatic, not pounding, but urgency. I like the word urgency better. So let's talk a little bit about Star Trek now. Uh, how did you get the job to work on Star Trek? Um Doug, uh, what's his name? Who called me? Not Bob Justman called me. They they knew my work and um, they called said would like to do a Star Trek. I said, well, sure. So I did one, sure leave. And I was lucky in that. It was, do you know, remember the story of sure leave? Yes, yeah, everybody goes down to this planet where they think they're going to be taking a vacation and the planet keeps popping up various things from their head onto the surface and uh, confuses everybody. It's a, it's a pretty fun episode. Oh, you got that exactly right, yeah. So I had a chance to show off my various chops because everybody had a different fantasy that was asking to be fulfilled. So I wrote practically five different pieces of music um, for each of those episodes. In addition to that, just to keep the drama going in between. So it was a great showcase for me. And uh, I did, I don't know how many, another dozen or so Star Treks. Yeah, I know you did uh, Shore Leave, you did Cat's Paw, Friday's Child, Mock Time, and The Paradise Syndrome. Uh, and I know a lot of that music was also reused in several other episodes again and again. So your stuff is heard throughout the series. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, they they were talented people with taste. Um, and they made interesting shows and it was interesting to, to work on that with them. So every piece that you composed for Star Trek, they all have very different and unique sounds to them. How did you decide on what choices to make when you compose the music? Well, Cat's Paw, um, the, the the clarinet is the, the cat instrument. There were Prokofiev thought so in Peter and the Wolf, and the clarinet tiptoeing around is like a cat tipping around on Cat's Paw. So I wrote it for five solo clarinets, including a bass clarinet and a contrabass clarinet. So that that was easy. My my choice of music for that was mostly cat music. Um, and, and things like that. Uh, I, I take my cues from the picture itself and try, try to match the picture and uh, you know try to use music to get inside the characters like music can do uh, that other... Uh, the vehicle visual cannot quite do. 
um, you know, get inside the uh, the soul, the, uh, the, the 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 inner feelings of the audience. So with that in mind, um, I constructed my various Star Trek scores. That's a that's a great answer, and I've got a question on top of that that I think it's very philosophical. So bear with me here, but what determines how you interpret a physical thing in life and how we translate it with our ears into something musical. How do you find that soul? I would, I would say I, I would trust my intuition of those things. You know, I, I looked at the, the work print and get a feel of the movie. What is the movie telling me? What does the movie feel like telling me? And, um, you know, I played in orchestras and jazz bands all my life. I said, well, okay, what instruments, what kind of sounds will get that feeling from this um, movie? Um, and you work from there, from the feeling, and then I remember, how did I feel uh, with this part of a Beethoven symphony or in this part of a Duke Ellington arrangement? How did I feel? What did that make me think and feel? And I said, okay, I could use that for this part of the movie. And kind of you construct it in your unconscious, by the time you sit down at the desk and pick up the pencil, um, the feeling of it is pretty much formed. Oh yeah, that's, this feels, here's what they're thinking of. This is what they're never worried about. This is, I want to make more romantic. And, you know, so those, those things happen in my, not my unconscious, let's say my subconscious. I think this is what all composers do. And uh, then the you translate that into actual musical action. What instruments, what does Jay play, what rhythm, what pitches, and it's called composing, or composing for film, anyway. <laughs> I've spoken with other people who've worked on Star Trek shows throughout the various series, and when it comes time to production and post-production, it's very fast-paced. So when you're composing for Star Trek, how much time do you have to actually do an episode? I think on shows like that, that no, there's one every week. Uh, there's never enough time. Uh, you just have to discipline yourself and say, "Well, for the next five uh, days and nights, I'm gonna I'm gonna sleep three hours a night and just just get the job done." It's a um, it's a challenge, and uh, and it also has to be your best work. That sounds like a contradiction in terms. That kind of schedule and best work. But you had to. That's you know the nature of the business, especially of the TV business. So uh, I think if I got a week to do a Star Trek, that was a big deal. Usually more like four or five days. And the group that you worked with, was that changed every single week, or did you have one dedicated group of musicians on Star Trek? I had a, a basic core of musicians that I called on, but because of the nature of the music, like sometimes you would write for three trombones, sometimes all strings, Sometimes uh, two, you know, uh, rock and roll guitars. You know, so it, so uh, there were basic half dozen musicians that I would basically call on, and um, otherwise it changes depending on the musical requirements. Like Shelley Mann was a, a percussion player that was on just about all of them. He was so versatile. You know, of course, a great jazz artist, but also he could. Uh, had studio discipline, so he was one of my you know, standard people. And uh, um, Ralph Grierson on piano, Lincoln Mayorga on keyboard, they were so versatile, they were practically constant. Uh, so there was a, a, a nucleus that I used, but 
It lots of hands. Like sometimes I would use no strings at all, or sometimes no brass at all. So it, it changed. But basically, a half dozen musicians were on you know, my standard people, um, and uh, we got to be good friends over the years. And on that note, I, I read that you had six clarinets, four cat's paw. Yeah. Did I say five? Or whatever it was. I know it was a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did that. By the way, uh, speaking of composers and musicians playing for me, um, ask me who was the pianist on, on the first score that I did for Kubrick. Who was the first pianist you did for the score on, on a Kubrick film? Andre Previn. Ah, wow. <laughs> and also Johnny Williams was one of the standard guys. He did a lot of Gilligan's Island. Uh, he was one of the standard core musicians. He was so versatile that uh, no matter what you threw at him, he'd throw it right back at you. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I like uh, you, know, you know, you know, John Williams, Andre Previn were my piano players. <laughs> well, that's, that's kind um, of funny to think that, that John Williams worked on Gilligan's Island. How about that? <laughs> yeah, and also on something called Shotgun Slade. Oh, that's the score I was sort of proud of. Do you know anything about Shotgun Slade? Uh, was that a TV series? Yeah. I, I'm a little too young for that, but can you tell us about it? Back back in the 50s. Well, I get a call from my agent uh, that uh, Lou Wasserman, who was head of, uh, I think, William Morris or MCA at the time, had this great idea to have a jazz western. So I laughed. They were obviously kidding me. Well, they weren't kidding. <laughs> Shotgun Slade was a jazz western, and they sold... Um, I did the music for the pilot, and it sold. And I did Shotgun Slave for something like three years, uh. along with Gilligan's Island. That was one of my standard things. And John Williams was the excellent... He was actually... I, I used harpsichord, because a harpsichord imitated the sound of a honky-tonk piano better than a real piano. So John Williams was my harpsichord player for three years of... <laughs> That that show, Shotgun Slade. Wow. And Gilligan's Island. And I'd say John Williams has done pretty well for himself since then, wouldn't you? Yeah. Uh, did you know about Review Studios? Uh, how uh, Lou Wasserman, who was, he was head of, well, I think MCA at the time, no, head of Review well, Anyway, they, they, they were doing movies, but television was coming in in the early 50s, and they figured they better get into television, so they formed a company to do nothing but TV shows called Review, Review Music. So they hired, they listened to the works of everybody in town, they hired two kids um, to be their permanent composers. We were on salary. I was one, Johnny Williams was the other. Oh, wow. wow. So we started off our serious careers exactly on the same day when we were hired by Review Studios to be their, uh, you know, their... They're not their house composers. So I'm kind of curious because I've talked to a lot of actors on the show, but never again anybody who's in music. And uh, you know, wh how competitive is it among composers in Hollywood? Because you got you know you mentioned John Williams. We talked about Lalo Schifrin. There's guys like uh, Henry Mancini, uh, just so many other composers at that time. I mean, are you guys all friendly with each other? Is it all competition? What's it like trying to find work in Hollywood in those days? It's a combination. The the four guys you mentioned were doing so well that the competition wasn't an issue. But I can tell you, if um, I wasn't doing well and I had a hangout, um, well, actually, I played oboe for a lot of those guys. I did some of the um, Hank score. I did one of Lyle's scores, one of the Johnny Williams scores as an oboist. Yeah, and I was trying to 
struggling, you know, I was already making it, but if I was struggling as a film composer, of course there's envy and jealousy, and my gosh, these are the guys I'm trying to break in to do what they're doing. Um, I, I never had that, because you know, I as, you know, was telling you, because of Kubrick, I got in at the beginning of my career. Actually, before I got to Hollywood, I flew out to do the first Kubrick movie there. So it was easy. But of course there's competition and I guess jealousy. But yet when we meet each other, we seem to get along fine. Like there would be composers forum for this or that. We would see each other and we're quite friendly. Of course, those guys you mentioned, we were all working. Uh, but what if I was, you know, me, you know, 10 years ago, you know, out on the outside trying to get in, I probably would envy me. Mm-hmm. Who's on the, at the end? So I, I have an idea. I'm not answering your question, but yes, to say, of course, there's rivalry and jealousy, but there also was a good feeling. Like all those people you mentioned, we were friends, and guys like Fred Carlin was another one. All friendly. So, a mock time is easily the most famous piece you worked on in Star Trek, and to this day, it's the first song people think of when a fight happens. It's got so much aggressive energy to it. Uh, and again, urgency, that word that you used, it's got a lot of urgency and tension in the piece. Uh, how did you compose the music for this episode? Well, let's see. Uh, probably the same process I just described. Uh, I know that muted brass has a certain effect on audiences. So I had that thing. And uh, you use repetition to get power for the music. And yet it had to be somewhat sympathetic. As I remember a mock time, that's when he went back to... Uh, to mate on planet Venus, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, the Vulcan planet, yep. Yeah, it's got a lot of rising tension through the piece, which I think is what makes it so memorable as well. It starts one way and it just keeps building on itself and building on itself until the crescendo. Yeah. Did you know that uh, that music was used a lot in Caddyshack? It's been it, used it, everywhere. It, I mean, it's crazy. I'll be watching something on TV. Even yesterday I was watching something and there it is. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, did you ever okay. think it would become part of uh, the modern zeitgeist in the way it has? No, when you, you don't think about that when you write. You just try to do the best for the show, and you're very pleased uh, that it happens that way. <laughs> yeah. Now, in that same episode also, you have some sections as part of that song that are supposed to be Spock on camera, and it's got this bass guitar sound, I think. So why, why did you choose a bass guitar to be the sound of Spock? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> uh, I, I like explaining this. Spock was a guy who had no emotion because no, he, he was not an earthling, but yet he wanted so badly to feel things. But he had to fight his way through his uh, <clears throat> outer space nervous system. Just like a bass guitar wants to play espressivo, but because it's a thudding bass guitar, it just can't do it like a regular guitar does. Uh, so that's what reminds me of Spock a bass guitar trying to be espressivo and unable to really achieve that. Interesting. So that's my bass guitar story. But I'm delighted that you know things like his uh, theme was for bass guitar. <laughs> oh, I try my best. <laughs> so in the Paradise Syndrome also, that's an episode that has a lot of cultural references in the music. There's a lot of like Native American sounds in that. So I'm curious, you know, especially in that era, we're talking in 1960s, how do you do research to understand what these different sounds are and, and make it be an authentic sound? Well, I, actually, I I did my research. I did two movies uh, based on Native American things. I Will Fight No More Forever, based on the story of 
Chief Joseph and the Mystic Warrior was actually a mini-series based on the Mato tribe of the Sioux Nation. As I did a lot of literal research listening to the music, and I also hired uh, a Native American composer to make sure I didn't do something stupid or insulting or just you know misquoted improperly. So that's how I handle that. And Paradise Syndrome, I sort of used use what the use my research on the Native American uh, movies um, to that, that sort of governed my uh, choice of music for that show. And so how involved was Gene Roddenberry and maybe Gene Kuhn and, and Bob Justman? How involved were all the Star Trek people in overseeing what you did on the music? Yeah, Gene Roddenberry was a name I couldn't think of before. He actually uh, showed up uh, for the first recording, and uh, he liked what he heard. He liked the way I handled myself, apparently, because he left me alone ever since. <laughs> That's the best when you got the boss who's like, just do what you want and get to, you know, get to work. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And they were so busy on the next show, they were kind of relieved to say, okay, we don't have to worry about Jerry, that kind of stuff. <laughs> now, did you ever get to interact with any of the stars on the show? Did you ever get to meet William Shatner, or Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, Nichelle Nichols, any of those people? And Nimoy actually became friends. Ah. And we saw each other in New York a couple of times, and yeah. And uh, William Shatner, I sort of got to be friendly with him. Um uh, and Bob Justman, yeah. So around the same time that you were doing Star Trek, you were also working on another Desilu show, and that was with Mission Impossible, which we know that Lalo Schifrin is the composer for that famous Mission Impossible theme, but you did a version as well for a certain episode of the show. Uh, but I just wanted to ask about Lalo Schifrin, because he's a guy I actually talked to like 10 years ago for uh, another thing I was working on, and uh, I just like hearing about Lalo. You know, he's the guy that did Enter the Dragon and many, many other well-known films. Do you have any stories about Lalo Schifrin? Except that he was extraordinarily talented. I mean, he was one of these people who, like, you, when you think of Mozart, uh, I think of Lalo Schifrin that way. I'm just very talented. But Lalo was enormously talented. And as well as, you know, the, had a kind of mind that uses his talent for appropriate purposes for, for film music. But just, you know, he's the kind of guy... Uh, you know, with an ear like if you go to a piano and plop your elbow down on the keyboard, he could tell you what each of the what each of the notes your elbow hit. I, I can't do that quite well. I have good relative pitch, but he had this absolute pitch. Sometimes it's a handicap. Like I would play jazz dates with uh, musicians who had absolute pitch, and if the piano was a quarter of a tone flat. They, they couldn't do it. They went crazy. So absolute pitch uh, sounds good, but it sometimes gets in the way. But but Lalo Schiffen was it was enormously gifted. So I'd like to hear a little bit about you collaborating with Quincy Jones to work on Roots, which is what you guys won the Emmy for. Uh, it's a very evocative soundtrack, and I think it still holds up just as powerfully as it did back when it first aired. Uh, what was it like to work with Quincy? The answer is we never worked together. Ah. The, the story, the root story is that Quincy was hired as the logical guy for the show. He was also at the height of his career. And so he started to write the first episode. And uh, for reasons that they're, they're, they're kind of personal, I don't, I don't want to, you know, tell, you know, tell us about him. But for whatever the reason one, he called up Stanley Coop. Stanley Nakuba, Stan Margulies, 
and uh, said uh, he, he, he can't continue. So I came in, finished episode number one. Wrote, oh, the, the what was the main theme. He, uh, Quincy had to write a main theme because, you know, they were advertising the show and they needed the main theme. And Quincy didn't come up with it for reasons I've let him tell you I want to go into. So that's when Stanton called me, or David Wolper called me. So I came in, wrote the main theme, finished episode number one, and did everything else in Roots, and Roots the Next Generation, Roots 10 years later, all, all the Roots. So we never worked together, even though when they put out the publicity, because our name both appears. Now, he did some of the first episodes whose name had to appear in the creators. So that's why people think we worked together. We never did, not, not one note. Ah, all right. Well, now we're setting the record straight, so that's good to know. So I like to ask about weird things on the show uh, and go into like some obscure stuff. I don't know if you remember working on this, but do you remember doing the score for the Harlem Globetrotters on Gilligan's Island back in 1981? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got to tell me something about that, because that's just, I was looking through your resume, and I find that, and I'm like, what the heck is this? <laughs> I think I did, okay, what was the, the theme they whistle in? <laughs> You know, the, the the basketball players uh, <clears throat> would whistle that uh, that that tune, that pop tune. So I did a paraphrase of that. I think I had to pay the original writer for that. <laughs> and um, it's just fun. I lampooned. I remember making a bit of the movie ended with uh, the Harlem Globetrotters picked up Gilligan and threw Gilligan through the the basketball hoop. <laughs> and I made quite a big thing of that. I remember. And um, it was fun. All the Gilligan's Islands were fun. That may be the most favorite one because it's the Harlem Globetrotters. So is there one composition that you did that you wish you had done something different to and only realized it after the film or TV show was done? Yeah, but I'm trying to think of what that would be. Yeah, occasionally some minor regrets. But I can tell you what, uh, you know, uh, uh, Angelique and Steve Forsett, they're they're putting out uh, uh, those two movies, Survive and... uh, Oh, oh, Cruise into Terror was the other one. They're putting some, they're putting that out, and I heard the music to Cruise into Terror for the first time in 25 years, and I loved it. Uh, usually I say, oh, geez, too much repetition, or uh, I should have held back the trombone. Usually you have those kind of things. But that score, I didn't. The Kubrick score, uh, of, I don't think I have any regrets about that. And score like uh, Cats for the Star Trek things, I think I like pretty much everything I did on those. It's kind of funny just looking back on something, you know, that many years later and just saying to yourself, ah, you know, that actually was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure if I thought about it, I would say, oh, no, I overdid that. Or that was too harsh. Or that was too much like a hammer drive to a wall. But right, right now I'm overall pretty happy with the stuff I did. <laughs> <laughs> So most recently, you just worked with the Fawcett's who we spoke to on the show on their sci-fi parody film, Unbelievable. And I know you weren't working for a bit of time doing scores. So how did they manage to get you back to do a score? There was a reason. I can't think of the reason. They knew some of my early work or they're one of the few composers from the 50s and 60s who are still vertical. Nah. So maybe they like that idea. So, yeah, when they pitched you the idea, what did you think about this film? It's very unique. Uh, you mean the Captain Kirk being a puppet? Oh, yeah, that's definitely unique. <laughs> I, I, I had mixed feelings. First, uh, you know, I felt a little, you know, relig- 
religious about Star Trek. It was almost a holy experience. It was such a highly respected, popular show. And then I thought, I love their idea of plants taking over. I thought that was brilliant. And I kind of admired their idea of playing Captain Kirk as a puppet. That's daring. You know, he's a popular guy. And uh, I, I kind of admire them for it, even though aesthetically it kind of troubled me a little bit. <laughs> so how did you approach doing the music from Believable? Because it sounds like you, know, you tried to keep it very much in the vein of what you did on the 60s Star Trek show, but it's also a little bit more modern. So uh, you know, what did you do for this film? I pretty much took it seriously, like it was a serious show. I thought that would be funnier. And uh, uh, when the plants were taking over, I used a bass harmonica solo. Somehow plants, growing things, country, harmonica. <laughs> that, that's the kind of association I was trying to describe to you when we, at the beginning of this conversation. So that's the process. It just came to me, bass harmonica to pl play the villain plant music. That, that that kind of worked, and, and I did that. I kind of liked the idea, and I still smile when I think of it. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, I watched the film yesterday, and I was hearing that bass harmonica, and I was like trying to figure out what that sound was, because it's also very alien-sounding. Yeah, yeah. Tommy Morgan was the harmonica player. We brought him in to Santa Fe uh, to record it. And the, you know the composer, pianist Dave Grusin? Uh, I, don't, I can't say I'm familiar, no. Dave Grusin, he, he won an Emmy for Milagro uh, uh, Beanfield War. And I think of, who did that, uh, oh, the, the Graduate. Ah. You know, Dave Grusin, he's a well-known composer. Anyway, he was living in Santa Fe for the time, so I figured, what the hell? I said, hey, do you want to play a dig on piano? So he was on the, um, uh, the unbelievable score, Dave Grusin. And Tommy Morgan and if, uh, Steph, uh, uh, Stephen was so intrigued by these three old timers that he took pictures of us, the three old guys on the unbelievable recording, Dave Cruz and Tommy Morgan and myself. I really enjoy the music. It definitely sounds like Star Trek. And uh, you know, I can tell that you treated it seriously and you treated it with a lot of respect and love. So, uh, And it really shows. It's a really wonderful piece of music. Well, thank you. Thank you. So, Gerald, you've had an amazing lifetime producing a legacy of brilliant work that's going to be remembered throughout the ages. What is the most important lesson that you've learned about life that has helped you through the years? Oh, that's a big question. That uh, down underneath, I had a lot of professional success in actually you know, three careers. Um, but what I learned is that underneath, I'm still just same Jerry Fried that was a scared little kid uh, trying to find a place in, in my life, and I still am that little kid looking for that. Uh, for all the fun I had and all the success in composing and all that. So that's what I take with me. That uh, the hell with all that stuff. Me waking up every day, there's me and the day and uh, the world around me and uh, my inner child struggling not to get lost in the shuffle. And I think that, that helped me through the dark times and uh, and it made the, the light times even more fun. Am I making sense? Yeah, that's a very good lesson. I, I Just basically remembering who you are and where you're from. Yeah, yes, yeah. You said it. It took me five minutes to say, you said it in 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, Gerald, last question for today. What's the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? The fact that uh, it's known all over the world over many generations, I sort of feel part of uh, contemporary history, that I was part of something pretty big and pretty wonderful. That's the feeling you get from Star Trek. Yeah, and you've definitely composed, again, a piece that is going to live beyond all of us, that a mock time piece. It's going to be continued being listened to by the 25th century, guaranteed. By the time we have real starships floating around like Star Trek, they're going to still play that song. Good. My great, 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 great grandkids will get some of the royalties. <laughs> so, Gerald, thank you so much today for your time and for chatting with us and talking about your career, your philosophy, and all the work that you've given to Star Trek fans and so many other wonderful films and TV shows. Uh, you've got a lifetime of beautiful pieces, and uh, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you today. Well, thank you so much, and vice versa. All right, thank you, Gerald. You have a good day, and be safe out there. You too, Matthew. Bye. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold, and thank you for checking it out. One more time, if you're not following us on social media, please do so by checking us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Trek Untold. That's all one word, no spaces, on any of those platforms. If you want to check out the video version of this podcast to see our guests, head over to youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday, where I post the video version of this show every Sunday after the initial episode airs on Thursdays. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, who create 3D printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing. If you're in a position to financially support Trek Untold, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash trekuntold to become one of our Patreon supporters. There's a lot of cool perks that you can get by becoming a Patreon supporter, including early access to the episodes, the ability to ask our guests questions, and a lot more cool stuff coming very soon. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes or any other audio platforms that you listen to the show on that allow you to do so. Or if you're one of our YouTube audience members, please make sure you comment on this video and give it a thumbs up, and don't forget to subscribe to our channel. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by Treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.